Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Uh, I had a school friend, well, I still have a school friend, I'm still a friend with him, called Tom. Uh, Tom moved away from school for three years as his father worked as a three-year stint as the uh, commandant of the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell. And his job was to train officers for the RAF. And part of the curriculum um, was that over the course of your training, you're invited to a dinner party at uh, the commandant's residence. And this was a pass-fail exercise uh, for the completion of officer training. And I'm certain you had to make sure that your uniform was absolutely immaculate, your manners and your etiquette up to scratch, um, as well as other things. But the key element of the exercise was writing a thank you letter. If you didn't write a thank you letter, fail. Um, if, you, if your thank you letter wasn't sufficiently thankful, fail. If you were found to copy someone else's thank you letter, fail. So my friend Tom's job as a teenager was reading through these thank you letters uh, as a first vetting process to see if these wannabe officers had passed or failed. Paul is writing to the Philippians sometimes after he'd received a substantial gift from them. It had been hand-delivered by one of their own called Epaphroditus and nearly at the cost of his life. And it had left Paul, according to verse 18, well-supplied in his imprisonment, which is a very serious matter in first-century incarceration. But how would you grade his thank-you letter? Would Paul pass the Cranwell thank-you test? You know what? I think not. Even after four chapters... His thank you letter reads a little bit like a Boris Johnson apology. Uh, it seems like he's just one step away from saying the words, uh, but doesn't quite manage it. Uh, and why is that? Well, Paul isn't writing a thank you letter. We see he rejoices in verse 10, and he uses the word rejoice a lot throughout the letter. But it's not primarily a letter of celebration. It's a letter of confirmation. 
Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. And the pressure was heating up on the Philippian believers for aligning themselves with the Lord Jesus. But Paul is writing to confirm that their self-sacrificial partnership for the salvation of others is indeed the pattern that heaven values and one day will vindicate. So he commends the Philippians' gift twice, first in verse 10, then in verses 14 to 16. But each time he corrects a potential misunderstanding with a not that in verse 11 and then verse 17. And he takes the opportunity to spell out the privileges of gospel partnership, first explaining um, how gospel partnership In Gospels Partnership, we experience the reinsurance of salvation. And second, explaining how in Gospel Partnership, we receive the riches of salvation. So firstly, the reassurance of salvation in Gospel Partnership. Did you notice what Paul actually rejoices in, in verse 10? He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He doesn't rejoice that after the gift, he has an unlimited credit to order delivery to his house arrest. He rejoices in the Lord because their gift to him demonstrates their continued concern for him. And gospel partnership isn't all about money. We've heard in this letter about the Philippians' prayers for Paul, Paul's commendation of bold proclamation of the gospel. They sent one of their own people, Epaphroditus, to support him. But ultimately, where you put your pounds shows what you really value. It's concrete evidence of genuine partnership. The dragon on Dragon's Den can lavish praises on a pitch all they want, but you see how much they really value a business uh, when they actually put their money down. You see the real values of any government, not by their um, bravado, but by their budget. If we want to see what we really value, we just need to look at our own bank statement. And the Philippians' bank statement show that they really valued the gospel. For various reasons, for a while, they couldn't partner with Paul financially. But now they were able to revive their gospel mind. That word, concern, is the word mind, which you've been here for a few weeks, um, is a word we've heard a lot in Philippians. And their gift is evidence of their gospel mindset. It's spelled out for us in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. It's the mindset of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, which is self-sacrificial service for the salvation of others. We know from Paul's other letter to uh, the second letter to the Corinthians that the Philippians as a whole, uh, they weren't a very wealthy church, but they've given sacrificially to partner with Paul in supporting the advance of the gospel here. And they've again put their money where their mouth is. And Paul rejoices in the Lord because it's evidence of genuine partnership and therefore of their genuine salvation. The phrase to rejoice greatly is actually a very strong phrase um, in the New Testament. It doesn't appear all that often, or similar phrases don't either. In Luke chapter 2, there is great joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus and the salvation that he brings. In Acts chapter 8, there is great joy as the gospel breaks out into Samaria, uniting a thousand-year divide of the kingdom of Israel. Then in Acts 15, again, there is great joy as the nations, the non-Israelites, are included in the salvation plan of God. Great rejoicing at these marquee moments in salvation history. Uh, And now here, as Paul rejoices greatly, as the Philippians demonstrate themselves to still be in that salvation and continue to be partnering in the spread of the salvation message. But this reassurance of salvation doesn't just stop with Paul rejoicing. 
Uh, In fact, in his first not yet caveat, he shows that believers can be reassured that the Lord Jesus strengthens them for every situation as they await the fullness of that salvation to come. Paul rejoices at their gifts, um, but he wasn't asking for it, he says, or even hinting at it. And we see that in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, at home, my wife, Abby, and I share basically no taste in film or TV, uh, which causes some problems. Um, But a few uh, weeks ago, I managed to convince her to start watching the Bourne trilogy. And amazingly, she loved the first film. So we're we're on to a winner. But one of the impressive things about Jason Bourne, if you've uh, ever seen those films, is that he's so well-trained, he can self-sufficiently survive in any situation. Drop him anywhere, in any place, with any opposition, with any resources, and he will find a way. What is said of him in the film, um, he doesn't make mistakes. Well, Paul is actually nothing like that. He has learnt to be not uh, self-sufficient, but completely God-sufficient, if that makes sense. He's faced all manner of situations as he's worked to advance the gospel. You can read about them uh, in Acts and his letters. Shipwreck, imprisonments, beatings, public shamings, opposition of all types. And in all of them, he has learned to look to the Lord Jesus to strengthen him. And we can trust um, the God who actually never makes any mistakes in how he strengthens and looks after us. But why is Paul saying this now? Yes, it is a reminder that um, he is not ultimately reliant on the Philippians, but on the Lord Jesus to sustain him. But also I wonder if there's a last personal lesson here from how he walks as a believer. If the Philippians continue to apply this gospel mind they have, um, as they live a life of self-sacrifice for the salvation of others, it may well cause, and perhaps is already starting to cause, some of them to be brought low, uh, to be in hunger, and to be in need. And it doesn't make it easy, but Paul reassures them by his personal example that the Lord Jesus is able to strengthen them uh, no matter what happens. Um, If the Lord could teach Paul contentment and strengthen him in all the circumstances he's been through, going forward, as the Philippians follow Paul's example, they can trust the Lord Jesus able to sustain them as well. Now to read those verses, it's not that Christians are to deliberately impoverish themselves or to voluntarily attempt to make themselves dependent on others. Some of the strongest rebukes in the New Testament are for those who won't provide for their own family or who are not willing to work. But as difficulties come on believers for publicly standing with the Lord Jesus, and they can look to him who strengthens them. In those moments in particular, they can know the power of his resurrection. The reassurance of salvation in genuine gospel partnership. And Paul rejoices in the continued evidence of the Philippians' faith and encourages them that the Lord Jesus is able to strengthen them no matter what happens as they stand with him. Next, Paul spells out some of the riches of salvation that we receive in gospel partnership. The riches of salvation in gospel partnership. And after such a strong statement that Paul didn't ask for their gift, uh, Paul reaffirms it certainly is a good thing that they're partnering with him. And we see that in verses 14 to 16. He starts, 
Yet it was kind of you to share or be a fellow partner in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, the Philippians had been early investors uh, in Paul's gospel proclamation. They were early adopters and continued supporters. You may have heard in 2005, the founding president of Facebook, um, Howard Stern, offered the graffiti artist David Cho uh, $60,000 to decorate their office building in Palo Alto. Cho asked to be paid in stocks uh, rather than take cash. And by 2012, he was worth over $200 million dollars and probably a lot more uh, by now. But the gospel uh, offers a much better return on investment, uh, even than Facebook in 2005. Um, And Paul here is genuinely more concerned for his shareholders' return on their investment than the capital he received. Uh, Verse 17, I wonder if that surprised you. He said, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is using commercial language to speak of the heavenly bank account of the Philippians. It is inflation beating. It's market beating. Um, The Bank of England can even bring it down. And it's even death beating. It's the soundest possible investment uh, that offers guaranteed eternal returns. And the New Testament does seem to speak of new creation reward uh, for deeds done in the body and for the Lord Jesus. Now, it could be the case that the reward is the people who make it with us to the new creation, who we've partnered in either evangelizing or um, encouraging in the gospel. And Paul certainly says that elsewhere. But I wonder if it suggests more here, uh, a general reward. And we get nervous about this sort of thing um, because rightly uh, we are repulsed by anything that suggests we earn our own salvation, uh, which we don't. And again, rightly, We're distinctly uneasy about taking any credit for work done for the Lord um, after we started following the Lord Jesus. And again, we're right. Um, All the good we do is dependent on the gracious work of God. The Lord began a good work in us. He continues to work in us. And he will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus. Any inclination of the Philippians to, to give money or to serve him in any way was initiated by, enabled, and empowered by the Lord. Yet somehow in his gracious sovereignty, he has ordained that there is a reward. An early Christian called Augustine put it helpfully like this. He said, God crowns not our merit, but his grace. God crowns not our merit, but his grace. And it's not to do with how much we can give. Jesus says of the widow in Mark, which some of us studied uh, this year, uh, she put just two copper coins into the temple treasury after the rich had put in large sums before her. And Jesus said that she put more than all those who had come before her. And God doesn't need our money. Yet he rewards those who by the work of his own grace give towards the advancement of the gospel. Now it's a sign of maturity, isn't it? When we begin actually to plan financially for the longer term. To make reasonable decisions that won't leave us or our families impoverished. And someone in this room was speaking to me a couple of weeks ago about how they'd taken out life insurance. Um, so that um, if he uh, was to die unexpectedly, um, his wife had had somewhere, enough money to buy somewhere to live. But how is our financial planning in light of eternity and in light of Jesus' financial advice? 
Have we thought much about applying his mindset to how we use our money? How we might maximize our returns in eternity? And partnering in, in giving money is actually a privilege that Jesus gives us to do now. And if giving in gospel partnership is something God rewards, it makes sense it's also something that pleases him. And I think Paul makes that point with a final confirmatory and combative note here in verse 18. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I'm not sure this is that helpful, but Paul is um, reinforcing a difference between um, getting fake Air Jordans uh, that fall apart as soon as you put them on uh, and the real deal uh, that lasts. He takes the language of a thanksgiving offering and sacrifice from the Old Testament and applies it to the Philippians' partnership. He's doing that against those who misuse the Old Testament and are trying to tell the Philippians to please God in man-made religious ways and rituals. And Paul says the Philippian believers are actually the ones who present an acceptable offering, pleasing to God. And their gospel partnership is what true religion looks like. And that's what it looks like uh, to please God. The riches of salvation include an eternal reward in the future and pleasing God now. Um, But it doesn't end there. Those things are only a subset of the totality uh, of the riches the Lord Jesus shares with us uh, or those who follow him. So just as the Philippians' uh, gift supplied Paul's, all Paul's needs, now Paul says in verse 19, uh, not as payment, uh, but as privilege, God supplies all the needs of believers in the riches of the Lord Jesus. Uh, verse 19 is a great promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And following the Lord Jesus is like marrying into the wealthiest family of all time. And believers are spiritual gold diggers uh, to the highest extreme. Jesus has been vindicated in glory as the rightful ruler of the world and the heir of all things. And he shares his riches with all those who trust in him and join in partnering in his great work. That includes all the physical support we need. And note we need, not we want, uh, for the time he's appointed us to be alive. But also all the spiritual riches we have in him, ultimately bringing us to eternal life with him in his city to come. That Jesus shares his riches with us is right at the heart of the gospel. And as he brings the Philippians and many others with, uh, home with him, uh, he magnifies the reputation of God. That's what he's doing, verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in gospel partnership, there's reassurance of the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus. And there's also the riches that we have in him now and in the future, ultimately bringing glory to God. But I do think it's interesting here, I don't know what you think, that Paul focuses almost exclusively on the privileges of the giver, the privileges of partnership, and that he doesn't really say thank you, or maybe half does in verse 14. Um, but why, why does he do that? Well, he is again confirming to the Philippians that their pattern of self-sacrificial service for the salvation of others, is one that heaven really values and heaven will really vindicate. Presumably, Paul is indicating he's fully supplied uh, for now so they can direct their funds elsewhere. But Paul does want them to keep pressing on in gospel partnership to know the strengthening of the Lord now and to maximize their reward to come. 
But if it, already, if it isn't already implicit in verse 14 and verse 17, I think it's implicit in these greetings at the end that gospel partnership also works. Uh, it's God's plan to fulfill his great rescue promises. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 22, um, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, Paul is probably in Rome, and Caesar's household represents the totality of the imperial estate, workers, slaves, guards, uh, the ones that Paul has had a particular opportunity to speak about the gospel with um, while being imprisoned. And I'm not sure how long after Paul received the gift that he sent the letter back to the Philippians, but presumably it was enough time for Epaphroditus to recover. And either way, and those who have been converted in Caesar's household know of the Philippians' partnership with Paul, and that at least in some way, the Philippians contributed to Paul being there to speak of the gospel to them. And I know it doesn't say that they're thankful, uh, but if anyone is thankful, it surely is them. It was a sacrificial giving of the Philippians that supported Caesar's household hearing of the gospel, and they especially want to greet the Philippians as this letter goes out. Partnership is not all about money. It's also about prayer, active service, sending people, speaking the gospel ourselves. But just for a moment, if we are following the Lord Jesus, um, aren't we thankful for those who've partnered in various ways to reach us or to build us up in the gospel? Some of those people will know, uh, some of them we won't. But I look forward, if this is how it will work, uh, to inviting them all around for dinner uh, one day uh, in God's city. Everyone who decided to spend less treasure or time or talent on themselves and give it for the advance of the gospel. Everyone who prayed, who encouraged, who even cared about my state before the Lord Jesus. And as we support gospel work here, for example, and people in the city are reached and built up, or as people are reached, as we prayed for earlier, through the mission partners we financially support and pray for as part of a church family here. Um, if not now, but in the city of Jesus to come, there will be many, even those we can't think of or picture in our minds, who want to welcome us into their new creation home. Um, don't we want to be part of that? And Paul isn't twisting the Philippians' arms to give more or partner more, but he doesn't want them to miss out on that privilege. And gospel partnership is a privilege. Uh, it is the investment opportunity of a lifetime. But just speaking to a number of us this week, and to be honest, thinking about uh, this myself, it's so easy for it to slip as a priority in our lives. Perhaps especially for some of us at work. We spend so much of our time at work, and so many of our interactions with people are there. Uh, for many of us, it's our natural mission field. Yet we can often find thinking about advancing the gospel as just another thing to do, um, to find other believers, uh, to meet and to pray with them. It's hard work. Or to get out to a lunchtime talk, or to get other people uh, to pray with us, or for us and for our colleagues. Um, it is an extra hassle in our busy lives. It's costly reputationally, it's costly in time, in capacity. Um, as you might try things out in your workplace, it's costly financially. And it's often easier just to compartmentalize our lives and our work. So we have our work lives and we do uh, Christian things in the rest of our lives. But the Lord Jesus has placed us in our workplace and he gives us the privilege of being able to follow his mindset there as much as anywhere else. I think a good question to think about this summer is what would it look like uh, to be sacrificially serving uh, for the salvation of others um, at our workplace? 
And for those of us whose work circumstances um, that doesn't make sense for, um, we'll need to look for other opportunities to develop partnerships in gospel advance. But I think the encouragement from Philippians 4 is the same for us. Um, As we give ourselves to gospel partnership, we experience the reassurance of salvation and we receive the riches of salvation. I think the jury is still out on a cost-benefit analysis of HS2, for example. Uh, I can't wait to save 10 minutes on my journey to Birmingham in 2041 or whatever it is. (laughs) But the cost-benefit analysis of gospel partnership is crystal clear. And again, maybe on holiday this summer, we might want to think and pray about how we can maximize opportunities to partner the gospel next year. I think Paul would say to us, um, why wouldn't we want to do that? Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you that in the Lord Jesus, you not only save us, but allow us to partner in your great work. Thank you that you strengthen us in the Lord Jesus in every situation as we seek to represent him. And thank you that we can please you now as we share in his riches. And we ask that you would help us as a 6pm congregation to maximise our opportunities to partner in the gospel in the year ahead. Amen. Uh, first question, I think is actually a question to me, which was why was this sermon series called Passing the Baton? Uh, which, if you've only been around for the last few weeks, you won't even remember because we've not discussed it very much. Uh, but essentially, the book of Philippians is saying to Paul's kind of key partner church, keep going in gospel work when I'm gone. Early in the letter, he alludes to the possibility he might die. And so he is, in a sense, commissioning them to take on the task that he himself has been engaged in. And I could say lots more on that. Come and ask me. But that's why it's called Passing the Baton. He is passing the baton to the Philippians, the baton of the gospel. Anyway, I hope that makes some sense. Um, if not, come, come grab me. Luke, some questions uh, from lots of stuff that we've looked at, particularly tonight. But one question just to kick us off from last week. How can we use 4 verse 6 to support those suffering from anxiety or difficult circumstances? Well, great. Why don't we read 4 verse 6? So Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication uh, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Uh, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so I'm not trying to be um, silly, but I guess doing uh, what the verse says and encouraging people to do that. Uh, so where, where one can, um, when we're anxious, to bring those cares and requests to the Lord. Um, and to, I guess maybe we could help pray with them, encourage them to do that. It's interesting that it says with thanksgiving as well. I don't, I don't know about you, um, but if I'm very worried, I can get very sort of inward-looking and um, not think about some of the bigger picture things that I can be thankful for. So maybe helping people think about what we're thankful for in the Lord Jesus as we encourage them uh, to uh, bring, their, bring their, any prayers and petitions before the Lord. We would well to help them. Um, I guess, you know, this is a general anxiety. Some people have very um, serious uh, problems with anxiety, and it might, might be right. and might have a medical problem with it as well. It might be right to point them to other help they can get uh, with that as well. Would you add anything to that, Tim? No, nope, that sounds okay. great. But it does, I think, tie into our next, or so it relates to our next question, which is, if we're, this has just come in, but what should I do if I'm not content but really want to be? So you're saying encourage people to recognize the things that we can be thankful for. Um, what if I'm not content but I really do want to be? Well, I think I'd start with uh, asking the Lord to help me with it. 
It's, it's a daily or nearly daily prayer of mine because I realize I'm not nearly as content as I should be. Some of you will hear me grumbling. You can just remind me, Tim, what did you pray for yourself this morning? Um, I, I have so much to give thanks for, just humanly speaking. And as you look through this letter, you recognize what a wonderfully generous God we have. So praying for contentment. I guess this is a particular question about today's passage and just the, the kind of the, the way that the Lord Jesus provides uh, now everything that we need and in eternity the reward. And so I find it helpful to focus on that. Do you want to say more on that? Um, maybe. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I, was, I was wrestling with the fact that you know, Paul, Paul just says that he is content. He doesn't tell us um, this is the ABC uh, of how to be uh, content. And it's interesting. Um, I think I used to read it. I've lost the verse now. Um, you know, in plenty and hunger, uh, abundance and need. I used to think that, um, oh, for the, you know, if I was being really rich or if I was really poor. Well, it's interesting that uh, abundance, he counts himself abundant uh, later on in verse uh, 18. I'm, I'm well supplied having received, um, sorry, it's not as clear, but it's the same, the same word. He, he's abounding there. So for him to abound is to have enough food and drink to look after himself in prison. Um, that's not quite how I see uh, abounding. And I may be um, sort of changing my attitude to what contentment is. So I think Paul would say, all of us here probably, um, we have shelter, we have food, we have clothes, we have some disposable income to some extent. Um, I think in his, his mind, we're all abounding. Um, so I don't know if that's answering the question, but it's changing my perspective a bit on what I, what I think that is. Really helpful. Uh, you talked a bit about this reward. We've been thinking about it all evening. Someone's asked, what, how is that different from what the prosperity gospel teaches. As some of us will have heard of the prosperity gospel, that God wants us to be happy and wealthy and well, physically well in this life, um, which is contradicted by the Bible. It's not a, a biblical teaching, but it sounds, Luke, this person is suggesting that that's what you're saying, or that Paul is saying here. Um, well, I think if you go back in Philippians, say, 1, 29 and 30, so... Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So I don't, I don't think the prosperity gospel teaches that we have to suffer in a similar way um, to the Lord Jesus, engage in the same sort of conflict Paul had, uh, Paul being persecuted, Paul being in prison. Uh, we're to attain to the Lord Jesus in chapter three uh, in the likeness of his death. Um, and I guess, so there's the fact that actually we're to, we have to follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus as we share in his sufferings. And it's, um, even it's a grace that it's been granted to us for that. But it's, what's the other half? Sorry, um, prosperity gospel. But I guess we're also not promised any prosperity in that sense in this life. Um, if we um, do what the Lord Jesus does, we don't have a BMW or, or whatever it is or something. Actually, the riches he promises are in him now and in the world to come. And someone's asked, can you flesh out what that reward actually is? Will different people get different things, different amount, different experiences of heaven? Um, well, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a big task, but I'm, read the New Testament and see what you think. Um, I, think there, I think there is enough suggestion that there is something of that. I mean, we start in our, our theme verse that we all receive, um, all those who are waiting, who love Jesus' first appearing, and we'll all receive a crown of righteousness. But there seems to be here, um, the middle of 1 Peter, uh, Romans 14, and some of the parables, one in Luke 12, that suggests to me that actually um, that there is some sort of, um, although we all know the Lord Jesus face to face, we'll all receive the crown of righteousness. Um, th- there, is a, there is reward in heaven. 
But not that anyone will be disappointed. <laughs> if you're there, you're not going to kind of be looking sideways and going, oh, rubbish, I've got a terrible experience of eternal glory. <laughs> uh, but that there will be a difference between different people's experience of it. I think that's right. And as, as Luke said, check out lots of references. You'll have to come back for the recording to hear those references if you didn't jot them down. Uh, but yeah, someone then said, is it wrong to engage in gospel partnership to obtain personal heavenly rewards? Is pursuing reward the wrong, uh, a wrong motivation for us? I, I don't think so, because I don't think Paul would have said it otherwise. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's a very short answer. Good. Um, some slightly more practical questions then. How can we be more open with other believers about financial giving without being intrusive, or should we be forceful so that all of the church give? No. <laughs> um, oh, um, I, I think how should we, should we... I don't think we should ever be forceful. I mean, the New Testament doesn't twist our arm into giving at any stage, saying, you know, we must do this, otherwise X or Y or that. Paul puts it out here as a privilege. So I guess we can in- encourage each other in the truth of the gospel and in the heavenly um, reward to come. Um, Tim, what would you say? Well, it was only that, um, how can we be more open with other believers about financial giving? I think Jesus says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. I want to know how much some of you give, because I want to know if I'm giving the right amount. And that's a terrible way to think. I don't know how much anyone gives. I know what the average is, because we uh, announce it on Giving Sunday, and it always makes me think, oh, I should give less then, which is terrible. I want to invest (laughs) as much as I possibly can in this. I don't want to think, oh, how much do I have to give? I want to think, how much can I give? How much can I put forward to this brilliant gospel work, knowing that it's a guaranteed reward and that it's investing in something so brilliant? So I was just thinking, if I'd had time, I wasn't looking at this, I was thinking, actually, no, I think I could afford a bit more. I was thinking of changing my, um, changing my standing order. It'll only take me two minutes. I'll do it after we've finished, and you can ask me if I've managed to do that. Because I know that I can, and this is a great thing to give to. As someone suggested that, we, um, we have a, a budget deficit of, I think it's £600,000. And they said, if we gave, everybody here gave an extra £20 a week, we would halve the deficit. I don't know how they've worked it out. Obviously, a maths genius. Uh, but that, that's, that's unattainable for some of us. We can't manage that. But I guess a lot of us could very easily manage that. And that would be a brilliant way of committing to the work of the Lord. Any other thoughts on what, what it will look like practically? Um- no, I mean, I, I did, what I did find helpful is people um, talking through how they think about giving. And actually, there's some um, recent sermons I've heard on Luke 16 on the website. And part of that is another passage which talks about how we use our money. And in some of those sermons, it speaks about maybe how we might think about um, the money we have from the Lord and how we might use it. And I think thinking in those sort of broad uh, principle terms and, and sort of having a little example of how to think about that, I find helpful. So you could go listen to those if that would help you. I think feel very comfortable talking to one another about the idea of giving. It's a brilliant privilege we have. I think specific amounts, please don't tell me. I'll either feel guilty because I can't afford that, or I'll feel proud because I'm giving more. Uh, encourage one another in the great work and work out between you and the Lord what you can manage. Someone said, is it wrong to change jobs because you're finding your current job lacking if both your current role and the new one have gospel opportunities? Not quite sure where it comes from, but I think you should. Um, I guess uh, I'm not, I think you need, I'm not sure, it depend on <laughs> more information than that. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Um, I mean, and the grass isn't always greener, but I don't, I, I'm not sure I can help you with that. And I think the question, you're already asking the right thing. Have I got gospel opportunities with, with these jobs? That's asking a gospel partnership question, which is brilliant. 
Uh, Luke, have you got any wisdom when it comes to giving to church versus other Christian um, opportunities like camps or supporting associates or that sort of thing? Um, uh, not much. I, I guess I, I think about, I mean, there, I think there are some encouragements in the New Testament to uh, contribute to uh, the local work, um, uh, paying those um, who are, are teaching the Bible, I guess contributing to the cost of um, running the work here and actually being real partners in uh, reaching and, and building and sending people from all the ministries at St. Helens. So I, I think to have a, a I guess, or, well, I think I give a priority to thinking about the, the sort of local ministry I'm in. But then, of course, um, to have things that we think are really good gospel initiatives. I mean, um, when I think of it, I try and give things that I actually will pray for, so I don't just give for lots and lots of different things. There's a few things I try and pick, just, but that's so I can partner in more ways than one. I don't think that's a rule. But I don't know, what would you say, Tim? I think I, I want it to be an expression of gospel partnership, so I want to be better at linking my prayer and what I'm giving to. If I'm praying for it, why don't I want to back it with my cash? If I'm backing it with my cash, why don't I pray for it more? If I'm turning up week by week, I clearly think it's something worth backing. Why don't I, I support that? And it does seem to make sense that if, if it's a ministry that you're invested in, uh, that you invest in it in the different ways that you can. Um, and that includes other areas of service. If someone's asked what other, I can't find the question now, but uh, we've said a lot about money. What, what other ways of expressing partnership are there? Luke, I think you mentioned lots of them in your talk, but can you just remind us of some of the other things you said? I think Paul talks about the prayers of the Philippians. I mean, the sending people um, like a, a Epaphroditus. Um, we talked about money. I think Paul talks about, I mean, he's encouraged in chapter one that people are um, emboldened uh, to preach the gospel like him because of his imprisonment. So, yeah, people, proclamation, uh, pounds, prayer. Um, probably other things. Probably other things. It's even a P there. There you go. Uh, okay, uh, last couple of questions then. One just very quickly. Someone's asked, how can I give to St. Helens without that money going to the Church of England more broadly? Uh, that's someone who I think has um, clued up as to some of the broader discussions that we've been having about the wider Church of England. And essentially the answer is, we don't give anything net to the Church of England. Um, we don't give any more than we get. Uh, there are other things being set up to make it even more separate uh, there are other charities that you could support that continue to support the work of St. Helens. But at the moment, the simple answer is, if you give to St. Helens, that money is going to the day-to-day -day ministry of St. Helens, not to the wider work of the Church of England. I think that's the right way of understanding it, and I'm getting nods from the people who know at the back. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, and then a last question, which is more sort of reflecting on the series more broadly, in particular a couple of weeks, late, uh, couple of weeks ago, when we were thinking about pressing on. Uh, this is looking back at chapter 3. And at verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I guess this person is just trying to think practically, what are some of the practical ways that we can press on? Luke, any thoughts on that? I mean, this is incredibly boring, but I, I think it is. Well, it's not boring, but it's a boring answer. Um, which you'd, I would do maybe to read through Philippians and see what Paul is encouraging uh, in the Philippians throughout the letter and uh, trying to press on in those areas. I think it must start from um, really uh, meditating on the Lord Jesus um, and what he has done. Uh, he, his mindset uh, is the pattern. His work uh, is the great pattern that heaven really values and really vindicates. And as we appreciate him more, love him more for what he's done, um, I think that'll 
Well, that, that's anything that really motivates me, I think, to want to um, put into practice some of the things he encourages us to do. That's, Tim, what would, you, what would you say? That sounds brilliant. I think, yeah, keep, keep reading Philippians and pray. There was a prayer that we started the book with. Why not pray that for yourself? I think we can often think prayer is not a very practical solution. It is a brilliant and powerful solution. Let's pray. As I have been praying most days for all of us, that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we, each of us, would approve what is excellent. Keep praying that and keep making your life one about this gospel partnership, this great work the Lord has given us to do.